0: Most of you know by now that Anna and I just had our 42nd wedding anniversary uh, earlier this month, and uh, as part of that, I always give a message on uh, marriage, um, what, what a marriage should be. And uh, so anyways, I'm titling this message today, Love and Marriage, and we're going to talk about love and marriage when Anna and I were first dating, or before we even began to date, we were actually um, both at the University of Houston. She was a graduate student there in, in biology, and I was a, a, uh, an undergraduate student. Um, she had originally wanted to be in the uh, women's dorm, but the women's dorm was full, so she wound up in a co-ed dorm. Well, it happened to be the same dorm that I was in. And um, so anyways, one evening, um, we were all woken up, or we were all uh, rather shocked and surprised because of the very loud explosion of firecrackers in the hallway of the dorm. And so um, the RA, the, the resident assistant, called everyone together because he was really going to chew us out for our um, immaturity. Well, a bunch of undergraduate college kids, um, they do tend to do some pretty stupid things. And and so anyways, uh, here we are, we're in this meeting, we're all getting chewed out, and I look across the room and there's Annette sitting there. And I think, wow. Wow. She's really pretty. I wonder if she'd, if she'd go out with me. And so anyways, um, one thing led to another. I invited her out, and we, we went to see The Sound of Music, and it was wonderful. And um, just the fact that she was as um, enamored of The Sound of Music as I was, which is a really decent musical and tells a really important story, I think. Um... Well, I just thought, you know, this is really good. If I'm going to marry a woman, I I want her to be someone who who isn't shallow. And so on that first time that we went out, I found out Anna was not at all shallow. As we um, began to grow fonder of one another... I, I realized that Annette spent a lot of time um, in the lab because she was you know, trying to get her master's degree and uh, found out later that the, uh, the doctor who was in charge of her degree program was actually having her repeat his work because his work did not go well and he wanted to prove it anyways. But it was for a doctoral level program here. She's only going to get a master's degree out of it. She didn't know it at the time. but um, So she had these just absolutely terrible hours. Uh, she, would, uh, she would get up at 6 a.m. in the morning. She'd go to the lab, and she'd be working until 2 o'clock the next morning when finally uh, she had gotten to the point that she felt like she could go back home and get a few hours of sleep. Yeah, she was existing on three to four hours of sleep a night. Well, the University of Houston Central Campus, if, if you know where it is, you know that it's not a, a really good area of town. In fact, it's a, it's a pretty dangerous area of town. Um, and so uh, I was concerned for her. And um, so what I took to doing was sitting on a park bench outside of the lab building until um, finally uh, she would get off just so I could make sure that she didn't walk home alone across that dangerous campus at 2 o'clock in the morning. the way she tells the story is her, her um, lab instructor, the, the doctor who was in charge of the program, he, uh, he noticed what I was doing at one point, and he approached Annette and he said, um, you know, I, he, he really seems to love you. Uh, do you want him to be doing this? And she said, yes, and he said, well, He doesn't have to sit outside then. He can come into the lab and just wait for you. And so uh, that was good because uh, by that point it was beginning to get cool, even down in Houston. And so um, uh, that was nicer to sit in a warm lab rather than on a cold park bench. Um, What did we do for fun? I mean, imagine she's working all the time, really working all the time. And so uh, the way that we would have our dates is I would wait until she was done doing whatever she needed to do in the lab, and then we'd go out to Steak and Egg, and we'd listen to oldies. You know, they had the little boxes on the tables with the oldies in there, and and I I both loved the music of the 50s and the 60s, so um, we would put in quarters, we'd listen to oldies, um, rocking away until two, three o'clock in the morning, and finally we'd go home. So she was getting even less sleep then. But uh, <laughs> I guess it, I, I guess I guess we were having a good time, so it didn't matter, right? It just didn't matter. When you're having a good enough time, you can do without um, some things that otherwise you really have to have. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it was good though. Um, so, you know, this is, this is the way our relationship transpired. Um, and then uh, I, I went with her to meet her grandparents. Didn't meet her parents first. I met her grandparents, actually. And uh, they lived on a farm down near Cuero, Texas, uh, down in South Texas. And, um, you know, when you're going to meet your would be spouses, grandparents. You know, it's getting fairly serious. And uh, then finally, on July twelfth, um, nineteen seventy-nine, um, we got married. And um, that was, uh, in fact, what I'd done is I'd called. I called Anna up. She'd already agreed that. She was going to marry me, but I called her up from Fort Riley, Kansas. Yeah, that's where I was at the time um, with the, with the um, ROTC advance camp. And um, so anyways, I called her up and I said, honey, I don't want to wait any longer. And she agreed. We didn't want to wait any longer. So she called up a justice of the peace and... Um, We went and got married with a couple of our friends in attendance, uh, one who worked with her in the lab and and, then her husband. And um, so anyways, we got married, and we've been together for 42 years now. So I, I think... I think we've learned a few things along the way, and I wanted to speak about those things. The reason I wanted the older kids in here is because uh, some of what I'm going to say um, really applies to you also. Um, After all, just about everyone who is in this room, uh, who has not gotten married, will at some point become married. Just about everybody. Proven by the statistics. So um, marriage is really important. Very important. I I really think that if you want to see what makes for a healthy society and a successful society, you look at how strong the family units in that society are. If the family units are very cohesive, if they're strong, if the relationships are good within those family units, then the society itself is going to be strong. In other words, the foundation for a healthy society is a society full of healthy marriages that are producing healthy children who are actually able to grow up in a stable and loving atmosphere and therefore learn how to care for one another. Because I will tell you, you don't learn how to care for one another Because you read this. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. This is the Bible. It is God's Word. The instruction is absolutely critical to our lives. But I'm I'm telling you, where you really learn it, how you're supposed to live, you learn it in your family, if your family is healthy. Children learn it watching their parents. And parents, let me point out to you, Your children really are going to copy whatever you do. If you do something, your children are going to copy it. If you use coarse language, your children will use coarse language. It's just natural that they would. If you treat your wife with respect, husbands, then your children, especially your sons, are first of all going to treat their mother with respect, But they're going to grow up understanding that when they get married, they need to treat their wife with respect. Well, mothers, guess what? Similar with your daughters. If you really respect your husband, it's going to show. And your daughters are going to copy that respect. So yeah, what I'm saying then is correct. That where you really begin to learn it is in the family. That's where you learn this because all of a sudden this is given structure. I mean, for a kid, this is largely just words. Words that mean nothing until they see the example lived out before their eyes. So, you got it? This is critical. I'm not saying it's not. I'm not in any way saying anything about the Word of God not being necessary. I'm just trying to point out that where it's really learned, where we really begin to learn what it means is in the home. Now, many of you know the story of my mama. She was very sick. Um... She had rheumatoid arthritis. It was very serious. She was uh, pretty much a cripple by the time she was 29. Um, my granddad took care of her. And this is before they had all these newfangled medicines that they have now that really seemed to help. When my mama was suffering with the course of her disease, all they had was steroids that would help for a little while, but steroids come with their own level of side effects that are quite severe and over time become very severe. But my granddad took care of his ailing wife. He took his marital vows seriously. You know, whenever anyone is married here at Remnant of Israel, one of the vows they're going to take is that they're going to remain faithful to their spouse in sickness and in health. And so my granddad, John Russell Powell, he took it seriously, very seriously. He really became my definition, my example as a little kid growing up. Because understand, my folks were poor folks when I was very young. And so they both worked, they both worked very hard. Um, My granddad and mamaw became my caretakers a lot of the time. And it was good to be in that home. It was a godly home, and, and they were good people. But I got to view what was happening until I finally came aware one late night of what the real rhythms of that household were and just how much my granddad was sacrificing of himself for this ailing woman who through no fault of her own um, had a very serious condition that caused her to be in great pain and that caused her to require almost constant care. Um, So yeah, it's pretty serious. But my granddad became for me the definition of faithfulness. Now, this is kind of off subject, but, you know, it was really neat to Annette and I when our son and daughter-in-love named their firstborn John Russell Powellage, Because, you see, they didn't know the story that I just related to you. And yet they named him that anyways. And God told me at that moment this is a sign to you that I'm restoring faithfulness to your family. And he is. A very dear family member who has uh, had terrible problems for um, their life. It wasn't him. Turn that off, please. Thank you. Philip corrected me uh, at the uh, elders meeting just a few days ago. He said, John, it's really getting on my nerves, your phone going off uh, at random times during the service. I've already had it off twice. I thought I'd turned it off a third time, but I guess not. Um, So... Philip, yes, your your correction has been noted. (laughs) But faithfulness. When you talk about love and marriage, um... Faithfulness is so critical to the creation of a good marriage. Without faithfulness, I don't think there's any way that a good marriage can occur. And um, certainly one of the things I have noted in Annette is that she has been a faithful woman. I don't mean just that she has kept herself only to me. I, I mean that she has truly taken care of the things that a good wife takes care of. Faithfulness. there's There's not many virtues that I prize higher than that. I want to see faithfulness. And certainly... Watching what my granddad did for my mama and how ultimately he really broke his health for her. You see, his people all lived into their late 80s, early 90s. He didn't live that long. In fact, he only survived for about a year after mama died. He had given himself, he had spent herself. As God commanded on behalf of his wife. As the marriage vow said, in sickness and in health. Her lot in this world was sickness. And he spent himself taking care of her. I don't see that level of faithfulness often enough in our society today. And... We're suffering for it as a society. And therefore, um, because we don't see that level of faithfulness, we have a real problem a very high divorce rate, broken families, broken children. Well, guess what? You take broken families and broken children and you're going to have a broken society. Did you know that? Broken families leading to broken children leads to a broken society. High crime rates. um, Just about every vice you can imagine being accentuated. Um... And I'll tell you, this is what's happened in our society. When you find a, a couple who has kept it together and who has done well in keeping it together. Because you see, the problem is not just divorce, which is nearly half of all marriages. The problem is that also, of the half of marriages that stay together, half of them are pretty darned miserable. They find a way to hold it together, but it doesn't mean they have good marriages. So 75% of marriages in the United States are either broken up or miserable. Not very good. And so, we shouldn't be surprised then that we live in a very broken society. You see, it was amazing growing up in the family I grew up in. My parents were intact. I was never a latchkey kid. My dad worked hard. My mom was able to be usually a stay-at-home mom. If I had a problem, I always had someone that I could go to. Both my grandparents, both sides of my grandparents, they were intact families also. No divorce. In fact, my family didn't know divorce at all until after my mama and my great-aunt Frances died. And they were the matriarchs of the family. And boy, you didn't cross those two ladies. Mm-mm, just didn't do it. As long as they lived, our family was intact. it was good. It was only after they died that those bonds of holiness seemed to fray. And we started to hear of divorce within our family. Very sad. May God restore us. May God restore all of our families. I mean, if you feel that with me right now, then say it with me. May God restore my family. Say it. May God restore my family. May God restore my family. Let that be a prayer of your heart. Divorce is a terrible thing, though. What's the Bible say about divorce? Well, in Matthew, in Matthew 5.32, Yeshua tells us it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That was in... Um, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So he lays it out pretty pretty strictly there. There's only one right reason for a divorce. And even that's not necessarily a right reason because how can divorce how can how can adultery first ever be called right? And therefore how can divorce be called right? So even that's an allowance. I've seen marriages That were struck by adultery. um, That not only survived, but became very good marriages. Because the two people worked very, 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 very hard to make it good after the sin had been committed and after the wreckage had been reckoned with. But it's not easy. So even that's an allowance. But it is the only allowance that Yeshua gives. Adultery. In uh, Matthew 19, 8 and 9, we read this, Yeshua said to them, He was approached by, um, by a number of Pharisees who came up to Him and they... Asked, is it permitted for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And so Yeshua engaged them in conversation, direct conversation. Public conversation. And he says, haven't you read, he answered? He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason... A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. You see, that's part of the marriage vow also. Part of the marriage ceremony. I will stand up here when someone is married and I'm officiating. And one of the things I'll I'll say is what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Don't let man break what God has joined together. You see, when you get married, you're entering into a covenant. And God takes His covenants seriously. And one of the first covenants He makes between Himself and mankind is that of marriage. For this reason a man shall leave father and mother and cleave unto his wife and the two shall become one. Right? So they said to Him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and put her away? Here's Yeshua's answer. Yeshua said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses didn't give you this allowance because it's righteous. He gave you this allowance because you are unrighteous and because of the hardness of your heart. Ouch for these sanctimonious religious leaders. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Now I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciple said to him, If that's the case for a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. Because, what if you choose poorly and you end up marrying a very difficult personality type? Or, what if you marry someone who is stricken by a very serious health condition? And to carry out your marital vows, you have to be willing to break yourself for that person who is ill. Or how about, no matter how hard you've tried to create a good marriage, your spouse eventually just decides to go another way. That's difficult. All of these things are difficult. And so Yeshua said to them, not everyone can accept this saying, only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made that way by men, and there are eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, He who can accept this, let him accept it. Life isn't always fair. And sometimes we just have to recognize that it is our relationship to God that matters more than anything. Not whether or not we feel good about our lives because we have a happy marriage or not. And so I see people getting remarried all the time and I'm thinking in some cases these people shouldn't be getting remarried. Their life was just difficult and they didn't think it was fair and so they decided to go and find another because they deserve to have a happy life. I know that I'm stepping on some toes. I don't mean to be too rough. But I want you to think about this in light of the clear words of Scripture. The clear words of our Lord and Savior Yeshua. Happiness is not what we're promised. In fact, we're promised that there will be difficulties in this life. And yet we are told that we must be holy as he is holy nonetheless and so our happiness is not his first concern do you understand that our happiness is not god's first concern 1 corinthians 7:14 I'll start at verse 12. But to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she agrees to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is not a believer and he agrees to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy through the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy through her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But now they are holy. But if the unbeliever separates, let him be separated. The brother or the sister is not bound in such cases. But God has called you to shalom. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife. So you marry someone who's not a believer, who's not a follower of Yeshua, and you marry them nonetheless, although you know the prohibition or the, uh, certainly the um, very strong advice from the Lord not to be unequally yoked, but you do it anyways. Paul is saying, that's not a reason for a divorce. You stay together with that person because how do you know but that they're not going to come to salvation because of your example over time? I met one woman when I was at Christ for the Nations down in Dallas, Texas, who um, her husband um, got saved after they'd been married for 50 years. It had been a very difficult marriage for her. But she married foolishly when she was young. She had a difficult marriage, therefore. But she understood what Scripture said, so she stayed with her husband. And God rewarded her when her husband became saved after 50 years. she said he changed remarkably all of a sudden the difficulty of their marriage ended it melted away I can tell you that Annette and I we had some really difficult times in our first 16 years very difficult now we had a lot of good times too but we had a lot of difficult times And just considering the way society is now and the way it was becoming then, we could easily have said, look, we're just not happy. And we could have gotten divorced if divorce was in our vocabulary, which it wasn't. And so we stuck it out. And after 16 years, something happened. And our marriage has been really good for the last 26 years. Now, if we had broken up during those 16 years, we would have missed the blessing of the last 26. Do you see what I'm saying? There's a lesson in that that I'm going to mention in a few minutes. In Ephesians 5, 21 through 33... Paul talks about the importance of marriage, what marriage really speaks of. He speaks of it as uh, in terms of the marriage between Messiah and his bride. Ephesians 5, verse 21. Now, you'll note in many churches that where they start with these instructions is they start with verse 22. Where they start with, wives, submit yourself to your husbands. But that's not where it starts. It actually starts at verse 21. And what does it say in verse 21? It says, submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Messiah. In other words, when you get married, you're submitting yourself to one another. It's not just the wife submitting herself to her husband. It is the husband also submitting himself to his wife. Look, marriage requires a lot of sacrifices. Requires sacrifices of your time. Requires sacrifices of giving up something you want to do for the sake of your spouse, and vice versa. It requires working together, actually acting as if you're one. What does it mean to be one flesh, by the way? Kind of insinuates that you're together, right? And that you're doing things together, not separately. That you work together. That whenever there's something that comes up that begins to fray at that togetherness, that you do whatever is necessary in order to fix the damage that's being done. In short, our happiness is not God's chief concern. The condition of our souls is His chief concern. And then after He says that, then He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands this to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as Messiah also is head of His community. Himself the Savior of the body. But as Messiah's community is submitted to Messiah, so also the wives to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Messiah also loved His community. Husbands, are you willing to die for your wife if that's what it takes to keep she and the children that she has borne you safe if you're not you're not where you need to be now that's a hard saying in our world today in our hedonistic selfish world today that our life is secondary to the well-being of another but husband's if you're going to be a good husband, your wife is secondary to the well-being of your wife and children. Not my words, God's Word. And do we really treat our marriage like that? You know, it's really easy for a wife to respect a man who is that dedicated to she and her children? The respect becomes difficult when you don't have that dedication on the part of the husband. I thought it was a little puppy, um, and I was thinking, wow. Where, where, where is that? <laughs> <laughs> Paul then goes on to say, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Messiah also does his community, because we are members of his body. For this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm talking about Messiah and His community. In any case, let each one of you love his own wife as himself, and let the wife respect her husband. This is a really deep teaching from Paul you imagine that he has just equated, he's just made an equivalency between your marriage, husbands to your wife and wives, your marriage to your husband, and the union between Messiah and His body. So when we don't treat our marriages seriously, then we're really demonstrating we don't take seriously the union between Messiah and His body. Do you understand that? When we sin against our spouse, we don't only sin against our spouse, we sin against God. So just very quickly, I want to cover a few things that I think are important based on what Paul says there in Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. And, um, but that are necessary if we're going to have a good marriage, a successful marriage. Number one, put God First. I hear young people all the time who come to me and say, oh, I just love her or I just love him so much that we must be together. And I put on a smile and I make nice sounds and everything, but I'm thinking inside, poppycock. Because based on love, I have seen lots and lots of divorces, you understand. No, you have to put God first. Because if you're saying, I love her, or I love him so much that I have to have him, you're putting yourself first. You're not putting God first. And so put God first. And the way this looks like then, is if God is first then God will compel you that you need to be with an individual. He will compel you to marry. It won't be you searching for someone. It'll be Him compelling you to do so. I remember at a certain point, and I know most of you have heard this story, but for those who haven't, I'm very sick in bed at the University of Houston. Very sick. 103 degree fever fever. 104 degrees, I mean it was high enough I was having occasional hallucinations. Um, My throat was very sore, I felt terrible. I don't know where she heard, where Annette heard that I was sick. But here she is with her schedule of 6 a.m. in the morning until 2 a.m. the next morning. And at 6 a.m. I'm hearing a rap, rap, rap on my door. And I dragged my carcass out of bed and I... uh, blurry eyed as I was, made myself, made my way to the door without stumbling and falling and hurting myself seriously, and opened the door and visions of loveliness standing before me. And I'm thinking, what in the world are you doing here? And what does she have? She has in her hand a tray with soup and something hot to drink and and she says, John, you look terrible. Go get back in bed. And so I went, got back in bed, and she sat down next to me. She made sure I ate the soup. I hate soup, but I loved it then. Um, I, I really loved it then, and um, then she made sure that I drank the hot tea she had for me, And, uh, you know, I hadn't taken anything for the fever or the pain lately, so she gave me something and I took that. And um, I was, you know, I mean, I was really kind of out of my mind, anyways, from the high fever and stuff. And as I was drifting off to sleep after she had left, um, I remember thinking to myself, John, you're a fool if you don't marry that woman. And I could have sworn in the background, I heard from God, Amen. (laughs) Put God first. Let Him be the one who drives the marriage. Don't drive it yourself. I've noted that when people get in the driver's seat, when it comes to marriage, they generally tend to drive the car into the ditch. Number two, don't be unequally yoked. 2 Corinthians 6.14. Yes, this is very important. So 2 Corinthians 6.14, please turn there. Starting in verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What harmony does Messiah have with Belial? Or what part does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement does God's temple have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says Adonai. Touch no unclean thing, then I will take you in. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says Adonai, Sabaoth. Wow. Young people, one of these days you're going to be looking to get married. Don't marry the exciting bad boy or bad girl just because they're exciting. Avoid them. Marry someone who is part of the family of God. That is if you want to have a happy life. If you want to have a miserable life, I guess you can go the other direction and your life will turn out miserable soon enough. For anyone else who's in here who is contemplating holy matrimony, remember the same thing. Marry someone who is part of the family of God. Or else don't marry at all. That's okay. Marriage is not necessary for a happy and fulfilled life. It's not. In fact, for some people, marriage will get in the way of what God is calling them to do. But when you get married, if you get married, marry someone who's in the family of faith already number three minister together if you want to know how to stay together you stay together by being together you don't allow yourself to grow apart how many perfectly healthy marriages at one point in their marriage have I seen fall apart because the two grew apart Now, part of that might be educational achievement and, you know, what your personal interests are as to why you'd begin to grow apart. But that gets back to, number one, put God first. Don't marry the wrong person. Don't marry because you think you just love them so much you have to have them. No, you don't. But if you want to stay together, then you minister together. And I mean that word just like I said it. Minister together. Everyone who calls on the name of Messiah should have their own ministry that they're doing on behalf of Messiah. That might be running a Judaica shop. Maybe that's the great calling God has given someone. It might be leading a prayer meeting. It might be leading a home group. There's any number of things that we should be doing as ministers of the gospel. And every one of us in this congregation who calls on the name of Messiah should be a minister of the gospel. Every one of you. In fact, my chief job is not to be the minister of the gospel of this congregation. It's to be the equipper of the ministers of the gospel. And you guys are the ministers. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If I had my way, I would be the pastor of a congregation that was full of ministers. Everybody a minister. Number four, laugh a lot. Make sure that you fill your marriage as much as you can with things that the two of you enjoy together where you can laugh and laugh and laugh as often as possible. So, the Creators of Prep, which is one of the better uh, marriage workshops I think I've been exposed to. I was an army chaplain for many years, and I actually did prep workshops for uh, married couples within my units, it certainly worked. Uh, I mean, when we began doing these workshops with the 335th Signal Command, um, I will tell you that the divorce rate among those who had been deployed overseas within one year was about one-third that long one-year deployment really broke marriages because the couples were not prepared. And so prep, through prep, we were able to prepare them. And then when they came back, we were able to fix damage that had already been done because they didn't know how to handle the intensity of such a deployment and you understand it's not just the separation we live in a 24-hour news cycle now right and so we'd have these spouses back home living in this bubble of this 24-hour news cycle and every time they heard a report of someone being killed overseas the fear was it's mine that was killed And you can imagine how intense it would be living with those emotions all the time and those fears all the time. And so that long deployment really did break marriages. Well, after three years of doing the prep workshops, for those who had gone overseas, come back, the divorce rate had fallen to one-third of what it had been. So it works. It works. Well, anyways, one of the things that they found in their research, this team from the University of Denver, made up, interestingly, of two Christians and two Jewish researchers who worked together and collaborated on this. What they found was that the healthy couples were not the couples that never argued. It was the couples who laughed a lot together. And so they found that even with very passionate people who argued a lot, if they laughed a lot together, it fixed the damage that sometimes occurred because of arguments. So it's important that you laugh with your spouse. I mean sometimes Annette and I will having a will be having a knockdown drag out argument. I, we're very passionate people. We feel things deeply and we wear it on our sleeves. Sometimes in the middle of an argument, I'll just say something so stupidly funny that she just burst out laughing. Well, it ends the argument, for one thing, and it gives us both the good laugh as well. But this is one of the ways that we, we have kept it together. And it's worked pretty well, I think. Yeah. Uh, you don't hate me yet, so after 42 years, uh, chances are you're not going to. And finally, here's the last point. Sacrifice for one another. Your marriage is worth it. So sacrifice for your marriage. Take the time to make your marriage work. Now, I don't know what the sacrifice is you need to give. My granddad, he had to really pretty nearly make the supreme sacrifice. Sacrifice. He had to allow for his health to be broken that his ailing wife would be cared for. Now, the sacrifice most of us will make won't be anywhere near that. But if he was willing to make that sacrifice, I'm betting we can sacrifice for a whole lot less. So sacrifice for your marriage. Give for your marriage. just, Just because you can, do something really nice for your spouse. Make a habit of doing this. Make sure your wife knows that you value them. You know, people talk about God being first and my family second and my work third. I'm not sure I really accept that. I used to think that was the way it was. I'm not sure I really accept that now. Why? Why? Well, because if God has called you to be married, remember where we started, put God first, right? God has really called you to be together. Then to serve God, you have to be willing to serve your spouse. If God has called you to be together. If He hasn't, you shouldn't be together. But if He has, then you have to be willing to serve God. Your spouse. And so, serving God and your spouse, they really coincide with one another in many cases. And to try to put one as more important than the other is is really foolishness. It displays a misunderstanding of what marriage is and what it's supposed to be. Now then, the happy news is this. In communities and societies where you find really good marriages that are intact, where the people have really put God first, where they've made the sacrifices for one another, then guess what? Those communities are strong. They're healthy. They're cohesive. And they can stand the test. Whatever the enemy throws at them, they can stand. Because the children are growing up in a good atmosphere. Wives are happy. Husbands are happy. And they feel like they've got something worth holding on to. How do you think the Jewish people withstood the terrible stress they were under in the shtetls of Eastern Europe for all of those centuries? I will tell you that one of the big reasons why is because they really believed in the sanctity of marriage and the importance of the marriage bonds in building their community. Now, I'm suggesting to you that we here at Remnant of Israel can do something similar. Make sure that our marriages are so strong that we are building a community that's going to be able to withstand all the stressors of the world around us. And the world around us will stress us. Make no mistake about it. But if we're truly living for God in our marriages and building marriages that are healthy and strong where our children are growing up in a really good atmosphere, then we're going to be one people, one body, one family, one mishpachah who can really stand whatever the enemy of our souls throws at us. In short, we'll be the head, not the tail. We'll be on top, not underneath. We'll be ahead, not behind. Because we're together, we're caring for one another. Our marriages are strong, and our children doing well. Amen? So love and marriage.